Hi, I'm Shreen Patek, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to executives who are changing the marketing playbook for the industry, one decision at a time. My guest today is Sarah LaFleur, founder and CEO of MM LaFleur, the Bento Box pioneer of women's workwear. Founded in 2013, the company has raised three funding rounds and just launched a brand new marketing campaign. Sarah and I talked about what it takes to stay afloat in the e-commerce era, when everything online looks the same and depresses prices. We also took a deep dive into MM LaFleur's growth strategy going forward. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, welcome to Making Marketing. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you. Let's start with the newest news first, and then we'll go backwards from there. Okay, sounds um, good. So you guys, one thing, actually, I will say, the first time I really did hear about the company was through a Subway ad. Really? Yeah, that is huh. actually... I love hearing so that. They, Subway so they work, works. Attribution. <laughs> <laughs> but you did just launch brand new marketing campaign, and I'm curious to start with that. Um, and talk to me a little bit about what it is, but also what was kind of the impetus and genesis of it? Sure. I, you know, I think when people think advertising and fashion, I mean, this is true of all luxury brands. Usually you get some celebrity in some super high, hyper-glossed photo shoot, and there's rarely any text or copy. And from the very, very early days of our company, I remember people telling us that we were a super chatty brand. <laughs> um, we Back in the day when we worked with this uh, French branding agency, they, they helped us with our logo. Um, they said that we were a brand that had a and touche de mauvais goût, which translated into a touch of bad taste, uh, which we were like, that has to be one but of the most... But when you say it in French, it sounds good. It sounds so good. I mean, <laughs> this is, uh, we were like, that can't be a compliment. And yet, in some ways, I think it became our signature identifier. You know, we were never trying to copy what Hermes was doing. Um, we really saw ourselves as the brand for thinking women. And when we wanted to emulate that, uh, just a high gloss photo wasn't going to do that. We had to we had to use text. We had to talk. And so from the very early days, and this might be one of the subway campaigns that you were referring to, we would, we would include really cheeky copy. Um, so one of the ads that became super popular that people talked a lot about on, on social was this one where it says, um, and Samantha is our She's our customer. We we always refer to her as, as Samantha. So one of the lines was, um, "There there comes a point when the student becomes the master, but at what point does the associate become the partner?" Asked Samantha, um, and that was one of you know our our biggest hits. I think just a lot of women riding the subway, you know, wh- whatever industry they're working That's in. That's what I remember. Yeah, could could relate to that. So when it came time to run our next big campaign, we were like, okay, well. What's the next wordy thing we can do? Uh, and um, I was inspired, actually, by a friend of mine who is a headmaster at a sh- uh, school in Chicago. And one of his teachers, a fourth grade teacher, had asked her students to write these Mad Libs. Um, it was called Where Are You From? And they would insert all these details, like describe your neighborhood, describe uh, your family, uh, describe a family tradition, blah, blah, blah. All of these details put together comprised the most beautiful set of poems that I've ever seen written by a 10-year-old. And first things first, I just thought it was incredible that that you could get so much uh, feeling uh, from someone who has only lived on planet Earth for 10 years. And then we started talking about, okay, what would this look like if we asked professional women, working women, a similar set of questions. But instead of saying, okay, where are you from? We're asking the question, what are you made of? And so we created a set of Mad Libs uh, and uh, asked these women, these incredible women who I'll, who I'll share in a bit, uh, questions like, uh, how, much, how much was your first paycheck? Where was your first job? 
What's the best work advice you'd ever gotten? What's the work advice you give now? What's a moment that you're scared of? What's a moment that you're proud of? And these these facts put together, again, just just ended up creating a narrative about these really, really impressive women that I think a lot of us didn't even know. So these three women, so one of them is Cecile Richards, uh, past president of Planned Parenthood, um, activist, uh, Amy Sherald, who uh, is an incredible painter, uh, heart transplant recipient, uh, and also, uh, I think, now best known for her portrait of Michelle Obama, and Kat Sadler, uh, who is an e-channel host who quit over a pay disparity. She found out that her co-anchor was making more than double um, and wrote a fabulous piece about it in Vanity Fair and, and now, you know, really activist. Anyway, we asked these three women to to tell their story. And I think that what came through, you'll see these Mad Libs, hopefully, if, when you're riding the New York City subway or uh, we're, we're taking out a lot of ads in, in various magazines. But I think what's most interesting is you really understand that these women's paths were not in a straight line. I think when we think of a lot of successful people, especially men, it seems mm-hmm. as though their trajectory was always, you know, from point A to point B, they made it. <laughs> There's a very clear origin story there that exactly. you can expect. Exactly. Um, you know, and I think if we think about the typical successful entrepreneurs, whether it's it's Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, you know, it, it almost feels like they were destined to be leaders of the world. <laughs> um, and I think what these three women, highly accomplished women, are, are showing is that actually their careers have taken a lot of pivots and unexpected turns. Uh, I didn't realize that uh, Cecile Richards actually used to work for Nancy Pelosi once upon a time. Anyway, the, these I think this is really a reflection of the kind of customer that mm-hmm. we want to serve. And, and also, it's just meant to be uh, an encouragement, I think, to to women riding the subway every day. <laughs> so I like that idea of pivots and you sort of don't know where the career is going to go. And I think that's who who you're trying to speak to. You're talking, talking to real people, mm-hmm. real people who are real women who are riding the subway or just going about their day and making lives simpler for them. For you as a company, I think there's been sort of pivots there too. And I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting way to approach any new business that sort of started, I'd say, in the last, you know, eight to 10 years, because I think the way you start a business now is so different from the way it was like, I imagine, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, you've got such a plethora of new companies now. It feels like every other day there's a new brand that exists in the market. Absolutely. And but you change your but you also at the same time have the freedom to change sort of the business model very, very quickly and very easily where needed. I know that you went through sort of a huge pivot very, very early days of the company because you yes. thought you were going to do something. You decided to do something else. Tell us really quickly a little bit about that pivot for those who don't know. And then I want to talk about how you have pivoted and had to pivot the even this basic little bits of the model through the years as the customers change, the markets change, who you are has changed. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I should just start by saying I never thought I would be working in fashion. I mean, I still don't feel like I work in fashion. I feel like I am one of my customers. Um, I am a working woman and I have struggled at many points in my career to try to figure out what to wear to work in the morning. Uh, and my mother was all, my, my mother worked in high end fashion and she always said to me, uh, costume is one of the most powerful tools that you have at your disposal because it has the power not only to change the way other people think about you, but the way you feel about yourself. And so that that had always stuck with me. But um, yeah, the, the, the pivot that you referenced there. So initially, I think I, what I thought was making beautiful clothing, luxury quality clothing at a price point that working women could afford, that would be enough. Um, and uh, the big realization really didn't come 
until about, I would say, a year and a bit into launching the company. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, we, we were... Uh, we really struggled the first 14, 15 months out of the gate. I mean, I, I did, I just like, there were so many moments where I didn't know if we were going to make it. Why did you think that was happening? Because again, from, from the face of it, especially looking at all these DTC companies springing up now, it's yeah. like, well, yeah, you can do that. You can go direct to the consumer. Thanks to the internet, everything is possible. Thanks to the ecosystem that has been built to service brands exactly like that, that have a great idea and just need to make it possible. Why, why, why did, why didn't it why work? Not? Um, this is my big takeaway. At some point, I really want to write about this in more detail, but our products are not cheap. Uh, I think our products are phenomenal value. Again, we're trying. We're selling products that would end up at a department store for $1,000 for $250, but $250 is still a lot to pay for a dress. It's good value. It's not it's, cheap. Exactly. And the other thing we were going up against is, uh, you know, we like to joke that we sell boring black dresses. They're now the most beautiful, best-fitting boring black dresses. It's the little black dress. But when you're online shopping, I'm, you know, and, and I think this is true for so many e-commerce companies, you can make anything look good. You can make that $25 sheath dress made in a factory by small children look like it should be hanging in Barney's. Uh, that's, that is e-commerce. And I think what e-commerce has done is it's put a lot of downward pressure on, on prices because it's hard to be a discerning customer online when you can't touch and feel and see it in person. So when we launched initially with our, our e-commerce site, I think customers saw our products and said, you know, well, why would I pay $250 for that when I could go to insert whatever company and buy the same thing for $40? Um, and so the the pivot really, it, it came out as, as kind of a... It, I mean, the, talk about like being pushed against a uh, uh, well, a, a wall, a corner. You know, just the, we were in a situation where we had inventory and we were we were not sure how we could we were going to move it. Um, and so we ended up emailing our existing customers. We probably had a thousand at the time, not very many, saying, "Hey, if we send you a box of dresses, will you try them on and you can keep whatever you like?" And um, we did that test. I mean, it wasn't even a test; it was an act of desperation. Mm -hmm. And we ended up making more money in that one week than in any other month leading up to that point. Uh, it was it was it was really the light bulb moment. What customers would say to us is, oh yeah, I've been meaning to shop from you a while. I just haven't had the time. Or I, I actually wanted to uh, get this dress but but I wasn't sure if I'd be a size six or a size eight. And just all that decision paralysis I think that comes with online shopping, especially at that higher price point, right? It's much easier if you're like, oh, it's like 15 bucks. Like what if, who cares if it doesn't fit? I'm just going to go for it. But if you're spending $250, you want to make sure it damn fits. So I, so you solved. You were kind of solving for two problems. Now you were firstly you were giving customers actually what they wanted. Yes. Because you've asked them, hey, would you do this? And they said yes. Totally. Secondly, you were solving this sort of very interesting problem to me of can one really sell expensive things that you need to touch, especially something as personal as clothing, online? And you're saying you can, but with a caveat. That is so beautifully summarized. Thank you. And when I write this paper, I hope you'll co-author it with me. <laughs> Um, no, really, truly. I have a job. I love it. It's great. <laughs> the next five years, sorted. Yeah, no, I'm out of here, Digital. Yeah, no, like, what, what is new luxury, right? Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really both of those things. I think, um, I think a lot of people in fashion assume that women love to shop. Uh, you know, I, even I, I like, I like clothing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this. But I think as a result, what 
department stores and brands end up doing is just shoving a ton of a, a ton of clothing into customers' faces, saying "bye, bye, bye," and. I think a lot of women, our customers especially, are overwhelmed by that. They, a lot of them don't even have time for that. And the last thing they want to do when it's like 11 p.m. at night, they've just had a full work day, maybe they've put their kids to bed, they're exhausted. They don't actually want to go online shopping. And I think what the Bento really did was said, you know, I'm, we're not going to ask you any difficult questions at 11 p.m. anymore. We're only going to ask you questions you know the answers to. Like, how tall are you? Like, you can answer that question at 11 p.m. at night. And, and so I think so much of it was just making it easier for her. And then, yes, you're absolutely right. The other challenge we were really trying to solve there is how do you sell not cheap products? How do you sell you know, expensive products online. online. And at the time, you were not going to, you didn't have the funds or the resources to say, okay, I'm just going to open a store. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Yeah. I think, I mean, at that point, we probably had negative $2,000 in our bank account. (laughs) There was no, there was no Fifth Avenue store No, no, no. We were, uh, uh, we were in an office on 35th and 8th Avenue above a methadone clinic. uh, And we could smell uh, McDonald's fries rising through the air and into our office. You know, it was it was humbling times. I mean, one of our earliest offices was also above a methadone clinic. Yes, yes. <laughs> Big things <to> start <laughs> above In, the methadone above clinic. Above a methadone clinic, there's a lesson. Let's talk about cost structures because I think that, you know, you've hit on a couple of really interesting trends to me. One is I think that there is that sort of fatigue with shopping in, and you're seeing a lot of different companies kind of approach it, right? You've got this rental rental market with Rent the Runway trying to say, okay, don't buy cheap things. Why not? If you've got a special occasion and now more and more everyday things, rent them instead. Yes. You've got, and you've got in general, I think, a pushback against this idea that you can buy $15 things, just throw them away. And why why even worry about that? That's happening. Um, so that's one trend. The second one is, though, which I'm a little bit more interested in, is how you made kind of the early sort of subscription days work. Because I think this was a time when um, subscription boxes and subscription models were all the rage, and they still are. Um, but there were a lot of naysayers because it, it is hard to make that work, especially when you get beyond a certain point. So yes. I'm curious about that journey, especially as you started growing and realized, wait, we have something that people people actually want. The costs are difficult to manage, though, right? You know, so there's there's so much to unpack there. The first thing is we are we don't see ourselves as a subscription business. Um, we we actually didn't even offer subscription until late last year. Uh, we I think we get lumped into the the box model mm-hmm. a lot because, because it's a bento our, yeah box. it's called a bento and that's what we're sending it in. But we really just saw it as our first interaction with our customer. We said this is a risk free way for you to try us, and we know our clothes best. And we think if you tell us a little bit about yourself, we can send you things that you're going to really like. Mm-hmm. And then and we, you weren't really relying then because subscriptions. You weren't really saying like okay, recurring revenue is my exactly. Okay. This was like not a an a, you know a SaaS like monthly recurring revenue model. It was really meant to say like we're we're brand first. Uh, we make beautiful products. We have a, 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 we have the best design team. My creative director slash co founder was the former head designer at Zach Posen. Her entire team is made up of people who used to work at places like Calvin Klein, The Row, Stella McCartney, et cetera, et cetera. And these are these are the designers designing now for working women. And so we had tremendous confidence in our product, and we said this is this is your 
risk-free way to try it. But then we have two other channels. So we've got stores. We've got nine stores across the country. And if you want to, you can also shop for yourself. So some customers, we we call them our Carrie Bradshaws, you know, <laughs> the ones who uh, do not want to be told what to wear because they know best and get out of my way. And we were like, you know what? We welcome you too. Um, uh, it's the Mirandas. I have a very special spot for the Mirandas who, who tend to come in through Bento. Um, and uh, coincidentally, actually, Cynthia Nixon wore a lot of our pieces <laughs> when she was on the campaign trail. Uh, it was like too perfect. You were like, yes. Yes. I was like, Miranda for the win. Um, so I think one of our biggest strengths as a business is that we get to really seamlessly pass customers from one channel to another. And, you know, talking about data and and how is that different for modern brands versus maybe some of the older brands or department stores? We know exactly what she's tried on in every single channel and then what she's kept and what she's returned. And I mean, if you just walk into a store these days, yeah, you're going to try on a bunch of stuff and and maybe they're collecting data on what you purchased, but they're probably not collecting data on all the stuff you walked into the dressing room with and then ended up saying like, no, I don't really like that. Or actually, I like that, but like I've reached my limit now, so I'm going to wait until next time. And having these three channels really allows us to to collect all of that information and serve her better so that if we know she came into our Bryant Park store and she tried on our Mirandy cardigan and she loved it, but she was like, you know what, I'm going to wait until the winter because it's just too hot right now. I'm not going to bother with it. Then great. Next time she orders a bento, we can make sure that we're including the Mirandy cardigan. Um, it's it's uh, hopefully good service uh, at the end of the day. I mean, that's what it, it's. It, it's meant to be, um, but hopefully good business as well. How do you how do you then manage um, acquiring new customers? Because this is a great this, that's a great way to say okay we've personalized service for our existing customers, especially moving them. Um, CAC is the is I guess the, 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 the keyword key phrase. I know ter- I was going to say aside from like writing. Mark Zuckerberg, a big fat check. Like, yes. You know, you gotta. Yeah, um, you gotta. I mean. but, but, you know, that's it's hard, right? Like, yeah. that is the cost that everybody, everybody, no matter fashion, food, I talk to people in any category. I'm like, what? So, God, crying new customers is so expensive. I keep having to pay Facebook so much money. Yes. Uh, I yeah. wish I had another way. Totally. But there, is, it, is it still Facebook? Um, you know, Facebook definitely plays a role. But uh, we, I would say there was a point where we were. Um, more dependent and uh, it's gone back and forth now i would say we are uh we we've really tried hard to i'm sure you hear this from a lot of your entrepreneurs diversify our our sources uh because the marketplace is getting so crowded um the one angle that has always worked for us and i always think of it as our killer angle is well it's two things really but the first is uh the word of mouth that happens among working women i and when I say word of mouth, I don't just mean like word of mouth. I think working women are a special type of community. So what I mean by that is when, when we first started and we were we were selling our dresses primarily through trunk shows, right? So we would get a customer, say, from Goldman. She would come. And then two trunk shows later, we would suddenly see five women from Goldman. And we were like, how did you hear about us? And she was like, well, we saw Judy at the you know water cooler or in the meeting or whatever. Working women are talking to each other about what they're wearing all the time. They're not going to Vogue. They're not going to Marie Claire. Uh, and that's a big sea change. Yeah, That's a huge change. Nobody's, the, the sort of the power of that like editorial magazine thing has changed. Yes. A lot. Yes. And and this is really, it's it's not a diss on Vogue or Marie Claire at all because I think they do great content. It's, mm-hmm. it, I think it's just when working women talk about what they wear to work, uh, that that's that's not really a that's not a sexy fashion topic that 
most magazines want to cover, right? Like that's it's like how did you find that black dress that's the exact right length for when you have to sit up on stage on a high stool? I mean, yes, exactly. And how do you find how uh, many people have had that problem? Exactly, or it's just like I mean, we call it the bend over test. Like, can you <laughs> can you actually bend over and not reveal your cleavage to sure. the entire office? Like, super like super unsexy things that so referrals then yes, are your are that, your that was, secret that was huge because they are they I mean they are congregating together on a daily basis without us having to do anything right Did you do a lot of sort of the the typical kind of okay if you refer a friend get the month off do the discounting there or have you sort of stayed away from that we've stayed away from it and we one of the things I think we're really proud of is that we've never done discounts uh, we have an end of year VIP sale for the few things that um, we make made a little too much of, but it's less than 1% of our total sales. That's interesting. Then how do you manage to make sure that you don't have too much? So part of it is that workwear is not fashion-driven. It's not trend-driven. So, okay, uh, I don't know, polka dots. Let's say polka dots were really in this year, and it's going to be totally out by 2020. God damn it, we've got to move those polka dot shirts. We don't have that problem. Our best-selling pant has been our best-selling pant for four years and counting. Uh, and, I, you know, I think that's true for so much of workwear. Like, I mean, I, I so I'm wearing a black jacket right now, uh, but this, I, I mean, I would have been wearing this black jacket five years ago, and I could still be wearing it five years from now. So, there there is a certain, um, I'm, I'm not going to say it's totally uh, timeless, but it it is certainly not as fashion trend driven as the rest of the fashion industry. And that has really, that has really been a big boon to our business. So referrals are good. Obviously, you're still doing some kind of social, yeah. paid social. Yes. And when I say referrals, we do, for our existing customers, we did actually just start doing, you know, for our best customers saying like, okay, you know, if you introduce us to five of your friends, we will send you a gift certificate. Um, but it is, I would say it's like pretty on the, it's on mm-hmm. the, on the DL. It's not a big priority. It's not a big priority. Um, and actually, I think a lot of our customers are the kinds of customers who would say, I don't actually want to feel like I'm making money on my friends. Mm. Uh, right. It's just like you, <laughs> the gym. It's like that gym thing. You don't want, you don't want that. You're yeah, exactly. I'm like, just, I, I don't need to be paid for telling my best girlfriends that I really love this uh, brand and they should give it a try. Um, what and else that, other than, uh, cause you are, you're not doing a lot when it comes to TV. You're Mm-mm. not doing, you've obviously got the subway ads. We've talked about them. Yeah, content um, is huge. Content. Actually, I was going to say thank you very much to DigiDay because we won best content marketing. This is true. We did. We, did. we beat Cont- out Reebok, Delta, <laughs> Players Tribune. I have a friend who works at Players Tribune, so I like to rub that in his face. But um, <laughs> Well, I think it's well-deserved, but because I think the content pieces become more and more important. Again, hearing this a lot, can't put all your eggs in the Facebook basket, can't just rely on one thing. And why not have something that feels more real, feels more authentic and something that you can control as a brand? Yeah. Who does your content for you? Um, So the founder really was uh, uh, Tori. um, She she was our editor in chief. uh, And just to give you like a bit of Tori's background, she was uh, the editor in chief for New York Magazine's wedding issues. She's a phenomenal writer. Uh, and then now Jen Braunschweiger is our, who's our VP of brand marketing has taken over, but she was the executive editor at Moore Magazine and spent like 20 plus years in, in the magazine world. And um, it's funny, we actually had 
the M dash before we had our e-commerce site. That's how much I guess I I believed in content. Um, you know, I grew up in Japan where uh, on the cover. So first of all, they're like Harper's Bazaar and Vogue exist in Japan, but they are not really the industry leaders. It's these four magazines um, released by four publishers, and on the cover of these magazines, you see slightly better looking models than you dressed as professional women dressed as working women and i know it's it's amazing they're like oh like i have my 8 a.m meeting can't wait to get there here's my coffee and you know it's um japan just does everything better japan is the (laughs) pinnacle of human civilization (laughs) they on the on the magazine front they really they really know something um i mean japan has a ton of problems with like sexism in the workplace but when it comes to some of this but when it comes to magazine content like i mean i remember because you know you're always reading a magazine that's 10 years ahead of where you actually are like if you're if you're seven years old you're reading 17 and if you're 17 you're reading Vogue like that kind of thing um so as a as like a 15 year old girl I would be looking at these magazines and I was like oh my god I cannot wait to be a working woman cannot wait to be 31 exactly I cannot wait to be like waking up at 5 a.m to make it to my 6 a.m meeting looking fabulous I mean now now I see the reality, but like it, there was such a glamour to it. Sure. And, uh, you know, we I, when I think about we say, OK, Martha Stewart actually really did this for uh, uh, stay at home moms. She made making artisanal jams and pies and doing arts and crafts with your kids suddenly so sexy. Right. So now, like every person in Brooklyn is brewing their own beer um, and. We were like, okay, can we do that for professional women when everything, when all the conversation around working women is so negative? I mean, it's like lean in, 77 cents on the dollar. Uh, now me too. It's like, why the hell would anyone in their right mind want to be a working woman? This. Exactly. Right. Aspire to this. But, and you're doing, you mentioned earlier sort of, you know, magazine ads and print advertising is important to the brand. Yes. And it's something you do. And when you're sort of doing it, is that is that the differentiation mandate? Because you're going through, say you're flipping through a magazine, yeah. you see all these people wearing, I don't know, like flowered gowns. Yes, that only yes, have yes. Half, half of them sort of are entirely sheer right t- totally appropriate for work you can see a little boob but totally appropriate <laughs> but we'll for work okay. yeah. we'll make it work somehow um, and then suddenly you flip through and you see I don't know a black trench yeah or it, it's a it's it, it could be the black trench but I think I mean I think our, our visuals are beautiful and hopefully the clothing you can see the clothing is completely work appropriate but still stylish but I think oftentimes people stop on the copy they're like oh wow this copy somehow really speaks to me this this is this is a brand who knows me um and i think in in so much of our content that's what we're also trying to say too is like we we're not just writing content to sell you an extra dress in fact most of our content hardly talks about our clothing our woman of the week i mean we've you know we've interviewed a variety of women ranging from sally krawcheck to uh, gail lamont who's a new york times best-selling author but uh it's it's really meant to be about their story their life journey uh and it's we're not you know we're really rarely saying like and this is why you should buy this shirt what does kind of growth path look like for the next year because uh, you know, you're you're sort of beyond kind of this online only thing. You've obviously got stores, physical stores. What comes next in terms of, okay, I'm going to grow this business. Um, where does that go from here? Yeah, so we've done, uh, so we d- we made some big, big uh, bets last year um, that are continuing on into this year. One is uh, we went both, I would say, up and down in formality. So we used to be, uh, I would say, like 
kind of squarely in the business casual space. Um, dresses is still our core business. But then we started hearing from customers in more conservative areas, you know, you know, why the hell don't you don't you have suits? Because when I go to the courthouse, I can't be wearing a pantsuit. I need a, a skirt suit and I need the blazer and the skirt to be matching. It has to be the same fabric. P.S. I need to wear pearls, too. Um, and, you know, us living in New York in these bi-coastal areas, you, we might be shocked by this. But it, it, this is true if so a lot of industries. Those- specific sort of cities and environments that totally to. right so we went into suiting and just trying to serve really more of this this business formal working woman and then on the other end we started hearing from you know a lot of customers I think who are in the more bi-coastal areas my um I I need a, a casual work outfit which you would think you're like okay well can't you just wear jeans but these women were saying to us like uh, the guys are showing up in jeans and a hoodie, and if I show up looking too nice, everyone makes fun of me and thinks I'm interviewing. So, like, what does a smart casual workwear look Did like? Did you go up and down in price? Uh, we are we have done that as well, and so uh, now I think our, we have some entry price point dresses that are 125 dollars. Uh, before I think we were at 165, so um, hopefully more friendly also for that customer who is Maybe younger. Exactly, out. exactly. Um, and you mentioned subscriptions. Yeah, so we did that too, and and that's actually been it, that actually also came from customers telling us she was like, I'm so busy, it would be so great if the box just showed up at my doorstep, and we were kind of like smacking ourselves in the head, being like. Uh, like why are we why are we like losing an opportunity here to serve her so we did that too and then shoes that was the other big thing that we went into um that also came from customer requests when we actually sent out a survey saying like what's the number one thing you want you would want to see from us it was shoes uh because you know they were like and we got this question a lot like okay i love this dress but like what shoe do i wear it with and you know our status would be recommending shoes from other brands and we were like, well, it feels like we should just be recommending our own shoes. So we went to Tuscany and worked with an amazing factory there uh, to make some beautiful heels and, and flats and kitten heels. One thing I find interesting just about in general, kind of zooming out a little bit about brands that, you know, were born online, you know, suddenly they start looking like every other brand as yeah. they grow up. Yep. We talk a lot on this show about formerly DTC only brands that only had a website going into wholesale, going to Nordstrom, going to even Amazon, um, going beyond basically their old O&O sites um, and opening stores. All of that's part of it. Where does sort of your, if if you have one, do you have a line around here's something I won't do, here's somewhere I won't go, or is sort of anything's possible? I won't discount. Okay. That is Other than that. Anything, mm, anything, and I think I think that's um, I we know we never said we'll never do stores because actually like we started and doing doing trunk shows, so I saw the power of exactly uh, selling in person from day one, and you know we always say we're brand first, channel second. So I want us to be able to enter into and pull out of channels as the trends come and go. Like I, I think the Bendo model has brought us so much success and I'm so grateful for it. But who knows if 10 years from now, that's something that anyone wants to do. But what stands the test of time, it's it's good brands. Right. But then on those channels, that's where I guess like that freedom could disappear depending on what the channel is, right? Because that's what you hear. You say, I chose to never do this, but then I went into, I don't know, I decided to go on Amazon Then suddenly now it's, I kind of lost that control over yeah. what I wanted to do. Yes. So is that, is control a concern or is control a priority? Uh, control is not a concern. I, you know, I guess I, I, 
I, we, we really do control the entire supply chain. We like to joke right. that, like, the you only thing... the factory in Tuscany. Exactly. Right. Like, we don't... The only thing we don't own is our own sheep. Like, but we're working directly with you're, these... I, I swear I thought you were going to say we're working on it. Hey, but, we're, but, but we're buying some sheep right now. They're lambs, but soon they'll be sheep. Yeah, one day. I would love to. I would love to. But I think that's, uh, you know, I think even 10 years ago, the idea of being a fashion brand or retailer that tried to control the entire supply chain would have been tomfoolery. And, you know, here we are doing it. And uh, I think that's also what gives us the ability to connect really what our customers are saying all the way back to the very beginning, right? Like when I, I remember the first time I ever walked into a conversation with a fabric mill and I said, I want a machine washable fabric because that's what my customers want. That's what I wanted. And they laughed in my face and they said, nobody's ever asked us that question and we're going to have to run some tests and we won't know for a while. And now that is like the number one, one of the number one things that we talk about when our customers ask, why are your products special? And so I think owning your supply chain is actually crucial to actually to, to serving what it is that your customer wants. Amazing. Sarah, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or tweet at me. I'm at Shireen Batuk. You can also send me an email at Shireen at Digiday.com. I can't wait to hear what you think. And a shout out to at Workamajig today, who tweeted and said, Making Marketing is Digiday's podcast for the industry. Meant for grown-up agencies and creatives handling large accounts, this podcast focuses largely on thought leadership. Thank you, folks, at at Workamajig. We couldn't have put it better. I hope you'll leave this fun review on iTunes and help new listeners discover our podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week.